All right, so John Bloom, if you've been here for a while, um, some years ago, we, um, I don't know if it was a book of the month or just a book that we kind of encouraged everybody to read, a book called Don't Follow Your Heart. Um, a lot of you read this book, and at the beginning he writes, follow your heart is a creed embraced by million, billions of people. It's a statement of faith in one of the great pop cultural myths of the Western world a gospel proclaimed in many of our stories, movies, and songs. Essentially, it's a belief that your heart is a compass inside of you that will direct you to your own true north if you just have the courage to follow it. He actually mentions a little bit later that actually our hearts are kind of like a compass, but only the Jack Sparrow compass. Um, if you haven't seen those movies, he has this compass. It doesn't orient to true north, it just points in the direction of what he most desires. So, anyway, the creed says that you are lost and your heart will save you. So, Disney and lots of other, you know, lots of other uh, voices in our culture um, are preaching that gospel. The only problem is God says that our hearts are deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand the heart? So we actually need help. We need a Savior. We need that Savior to save us from ourselves, to heal us and make us new from the inside out. So Jesus comes and lives and dies in our place for our sins, to atone for our sins. So he didn't simply come to just be an example to us of how to live. Because by nature, we wouldn't follow. If we follow our heart, we're going to be just going after all of these desires. We think we're going to be satisfied, and it never satisfies us. We go after everything but God, naturally. The only reason we go after God, naturally, is to use Him to get what we really want. You know? Like... Everybody's praying when the bullets are flying. Foxhole faith, right? Use God, and then once he gives you what you want, you ditch him. So on our own, no one seeks God for God, which is actually spiritually suicidal because the very thing that we need the most, we don't want naturally. We run away from God. So he comes after us. He rescues us from ourselves, from our lostness, from our wandering, which is why the gospel answer to the craziness of our hearts, the narcissism of our hearts, is a new heart. Ezekiel 36, 26 is a prophetic word about the new covenant, what God is going to do through Christ. And he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, his spirit, I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone, that cold, dead heart, dead to God, and give you a soft heart, a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So that's what it means. Another way to talk about that phenomenon, that miracle, is being born again. Spiritual miracle of conversion. 
It's what it means to be a new creation in Christ. So by nature, our hearts are hard, so we need a new one. By nature, our eyes spiritually are blind, so we need new eyes. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4 that if the gospel is veiled to people, it's veiled to those who are perishing because the God of this world, Satan, blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they don't see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. They look at Jesus like the rich young ruler and go, not, not a good deal, and walk away after their real treasures, so-called. So the gospel comes, and the Spirit of God has got to work the miracle to open our eyes to see that, no, all this stuff is loss, and Christ is the real gain. So if that's happened to you, it's a miracle. It's a miracle because by nature, Jesus looks like loss and everything. All the shiny stuff in this world looks like gain. So if you're a Christian this morning, you've got a new heart and new eyes. By miraculous grace, but you've also got a battle on your hands. We all have a battle on our hands. Because becoming a Christian does not mean that you get inoculated against, you know, ever sinning again. Yes, we have a new heart with new desires, but our old nature is not totally dead yet. <laughs> it's not totally eradicated. So it's been deposed. We don't have to be a slave of our sinful nature, but it keeps rearing its ugly head, jockeying for, for position and control, which is why Paul writes in Romans 7 like he does. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Um, actually, skip down a little bit there. For I know that nothing dwells Nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but, the ability to, but not the, the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And then down a little further, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, in my heart, this war being waged. I'm captive to the law of sin, even though I want to please God. So wretched man that I am. Who's going to free me from the body of this death? So does anybody resonate with that struggle? Okay, at least four of you. That's good. Hopefully by the end, maybe a few more. So what do you do? I imagine most of us resonate with that struggle. What do you do? How do you fight? So certainly in the context of Romans 7, chapter 6 is really helpful. You could look at that later. Chapter 8 is really helpful. You could look at that later. But this morning, we're going to lay these two, these two texts, one from Psalm 119, one from Proverbs 4, side by side and consider some very simple but very important wisdom on how to fight for our faith. Okay? So the first point is essentially that we battle on our knees. Okay? We have got to recognize how weak we are, how powerless we are, and how strong and willing and able God is to help us. So point number one, train my heart heart and eyes. You can, there'll be a, there's an um, outline in the bulletin. Points will be up on the screen as well. We're going to look first at Psalm 119, 36 and 37. Train my heart and eyes. And then we'll look at Proverbs 4. So Proverbs 119, 36 and 37. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life 
in your ways. So we don't need to follow our heart. We need God to train our heart and train our eyes on what is truly good and true and beautiful. So I use the word train actually in two senses on purpose, okay? So you know the word train can mean a lot of different things, right? Noun, verb, and okay. So think about it. Train my heart and eyes means to direct them, to aim them, to point them. You know, training a rifle on a target, right? Train also is something that you do to get ready for a marathon, right? So it means that we need God to teach and shape our heart and our eyes by means of repeated work. Work on my heart and train my heart. Incline it in the right direction. Bend it in the right direction. So Psalm 19, 36 and 37 is a prayer. In fact, if you are familiar with Psalm 119, it's 176 verses long, and only two of those 176 verses are not prayers. They're all directed to God except for two verses. So this section is filled with pleas. So, so Psalm 119 is an acrostic, so that's why you have those little funny, did you guys see that? Um, Kaf and Mem and Nun and Samech and Ayin, and those are Hebrew letters. So this is a, an acrostic. So all the, all the first letters of the first, of the line in each of those eight line sections starts with the Hebrew equivalent of A and then B and then C. So there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, 22 times 8, 176. Okay, got it? Okay, so it's not he, it's hey. It's a Hebrew letter. You guys tracking with me? Page 513, H-E, hey. It's a Hebrew, okay. Yes, okay. All right, so this section, hey, hey, the hey section um, is filled with pleas for grace so that the psalmist will be obedient, walking God's path by God's grace. Look at verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it, the way, to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commands, for I delight in it. And then there's our two verses for the morning. So can you see why it makes sense that verses 36 and 37 would follow verses 35, 33 to 35? So if I'm going to keep God's way all the way to the end, I need endurance and perseverance. Help. I'm prone to wander and climb my heart. If I'm going to observe God's will with my whole heart, incline my heart because I'm so often divided. If I'm going to delight in God's path, you got to own my heart. You see it? So I need God, we need God to incline our heart to want what God wants, to love what God loves, to value what is truly valuable. And if that's going to happen, we need to not get distracted by worthless and empty things. Verse 37. So I'm guessing you can understand that progression not just intellectually, but experientially, yes? <laughs> okay? So if so, don't you feel the need? Anybody here this morning feeling the need for God to help to train our heart and 
eyes. Yeah. Well, let's look at each one in turn. Okay. First, incline my heart. So train it, aim it, focus it, direct it, or redirect it. So the same verb is actually used in Psalm 102.2, just so we can get an idea of what this means, what we're asking for. Psalm 102.2 says, Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. So the same verb, incline your ear, is incline my heart. So how do you want God to respond when you call? Indifferent? Do you want him to be half-hearted? Do you want him to be like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> like a husband half listening to, you know, his wife while he's, you know, texting? Or a parent half listening to a child when they're clamoring for attention? No, you want God to attend to your prayer. So that's what we need is to attend to him, to be inclined, to give him our full attention. We need our hearts to be bent on God, like Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? And if your heart is not inclined that way, you can pray. We can pray. We can ask God to help us. And if you're like me, you need to pray this prayer a lot. <laughs> Anybody? I mean, actually, I ran across the thing 15 years ago. I-O-U-S. And if you've been in prayer meeting, you've heard me share this a few times over the years. The first, it's a little prayer acronym and from the Psalms. Incline my heart. That's the I. Um, the O is open my eyes to see wonderful things. Unite. The U is unite my heart to fear your name. And the S is satisfy me uh, with your steadfast love that I may rejoice and be glad in you. So, I tend to pray that at least every day before I get in the Word. Like, I need help. Help me to see your glory, not just see words on the page. I, wanna, I want to want you. So if you think about it, isn't it encouraging that the inspired psalmist who loved God and his words so much, if you read the rest of Psalm 119, had to pray like this? Like, we're not the only ones whose hearts are so often bent in the wrong direction. I mean, we're all just spring-loaded to selfish gain, aren't we? Do you ever wake up in the morning and getting in the Word is not easy, natural? You want to get to work? Getting stuff done at home or at work seems way more practical, necessary, productive, important. And what do we do? We starve our souls of the food that we need for our faith to be strong and fruitful. Jesus said it, man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And when we buy that lie, Satan laughs up his sleeve because you know what? We're in wartime and we're leaving our sword on the shelf. So, interestingly, Solomon prayed something very similar to this. In 1 Kings 8, 
he prayed, The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments. So Solomon is praying this on the front end of his reign at the dedication of the temple. Anybody ever bothered by Solomon? Anybody ever bothered by the fact that the Bible says he was the wisest man that ever lived before Jesus, and yet, you know, he was such a fool as far as, you know, the women and all of that, idolatry. So we chafe a little bit at this. How can Solomon be so wise? Maybe rather than chafing at Solomon, we ought to tremble at the story of Solomon. Like we ought to be warned by the story of Solomon. Isn't it scary that this prayer was on his heart and lips at the beginning? And we know what happened, right? A few chapters later, 1 Kings 11, now King Solomon loved many foreign women from nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their God. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. I mean, it can be great for diplomacy, right? International relations. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So, I think we should know this. The Bible warns us. It makes it clear. Our love can grow cold. We can forget our first love, right? You can get lukewarm in your faith. So don't you want, don't you need God to train your heart? I know I do. To train it on him and his grace and his truth. So incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. I am so prone to wander, Lord. I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. So we need his goodness like a fetter, like chains, to bind our wandering hearts to him. So we offer up our hearts that he would take them and seal them for his courts above. Come thou fount. You know those words. So left to ourselves, our hearts will be filled with and guided by other things, lust, Envy, covetousness, pride, self-pity, fear, anxiety. So we need the Lord to bend our hearts away from slavery to these things, to be governed by his word, by his grace. So God's ways, his path is the only one to true gain. Okay, so incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. The gain that we chase when we wander from God and his will and his ways, it's cut rate. It's fool's gold. It's trinkets. So this prayer is all about the ordering of our loves. What do you want? What is it that competes with God for your heart's affection and allegiance? Is it your appetites like food, sex, alcohol, drugs, 
What is it that competes? I mean, I, how many times have I thought, I'm insane. I love food more than God. Food's good. Food's great. All these things are good in their, well, drugs. Okay, some kind of drugs. Um, prescription. Anyway, yeah, in their proper place. But what is competing for, like, your heart's affection? Comfort? Control? Image? There's all kinds of stuff. So are you praying for God to incline and own your heart's affection? The second prayer is train my eyes. So it's another prayer of dependence. Verse 37, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. So, again, ponder this one a little bit here. We need God to train our eyes in both senses away from worthless things and onto Him. So, we need to run the race that's set before us with our eyes fixed on Jesus. But it is so easy to get distracted, isn't it? So easy to divert our eyes away from Jesus onto other things. We are so easily drawn away, and we aim at and we focus on the wrong things. So the psalmist prays that God will turn his eyes away from looking at worthless things, worthless, things that are empty and vain. Okay, so the same word is actually used in Psalm 24, 4. In answer to the question, who can approach the Lord and stand in his presence, the psalmist answers, he who has a clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false. So an idol is a false god. It's empty and vain. So idols, vain, worthless things. But the reason that we're tempted to fixate on those kinds of things is because they offer something. They promise life, right? So... Anybody resonate with this? Do you ever feel empty and dull and bored and lifeless? And let's say a sexually provocative image. Can't that be like a little hit of electricity to the soul? And all of a sudden you feel alive for a second. It's like shock therapy. Or there's retail therapy, and all of a sudden you feel alive for a moment. Or there's social media therapy, YouTube therapy. Have you ever wasted 30 minutes or an hour on Instagram or Facebook or, you know, YouTube video after YouTube or Snapchat and thought, what? why did I just do that? Have you ever felt satisfied after extended sessions of scrolling and clicking? So these media platforms have a gravitational pull because they're offering some life, it seems. An immediate little pleasure hit, like sugar for the soul. And who doesn't want to pop a visual chocolate in his mouth, especially after a long day? We're hungry. We're soul hungry. Ooh, that tastes good. We're tired. Ah, a little rest. 
We're weary. I don't have to think. So mindless apps, web surfing, surfing, channel surfing, getting hooked into that movie that you've already seen twice and you're falling asleep at 1 a.m. and just thinking, what in the world am I doing? And then you're so tired, you don't want to get up in the morning and get in the work. Anyway, you see? So we get started and we keep popping, we keep scrolling, one more video, keep watching, binge watching, thinking that another little hit of pleasure will put us on the path of life or keep us there. So I'm not saying that social media is evil. I'm not saying don't ever watch TV again. There's certainly a a place for it. Some of it's good. Some of it's neutral. Some of it's pretty banal and trivial. There's a lot that's poison. But you're never going to find life on that path, like real life, the kind of deep, satisfying life that you really need. So um, not not long ago, I read a book. Actually, Tyler and I I read it together, 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You by Tony Reinke. I'd recommend it to you. There you go. Um, In that book, he makes this connection. Okay, Uh, nerds out there, Harry Potter fans, you'll appreciate this. So in the Harry Potter books, there's a magical mirror called the Mirror of Erised. When you look into this mirror, it reveals not your face, but the deepest desires and longings of your heart. So Reinke kind of makes the connection. You could say that our screens the little glowing rectangle we carry around, but also other screens we use, are like that mirror. Our phone, our TV screens, we spend a lot of time looking at them. Where the gaze of our eyes is trained, it's a mirror of what our hearts want. So what does your browser history say about your heart? What does your watch history on Netflix say about your heart, what you want? What does your screen time say about your heart? Eyes and the heart are inextricably linked. So I'm not asking these questions from up on my moral high horse, you know, self-righteously looking down. Like, I can so easily get sucked into TV or Instagram or Facebook. I've wasted, you know, time late at night when I should have been falling asleep and not going to bed, you know, so stupid late. I'm tempted to click on hashtags that are likely to be playing with fire. So we need help to live well, to spend our time wisely, to look at the right things and love the right things. So turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Help me to even see value according to reality from your perspective, Lord, and give me life in your ways. We're desperate, aren't we? We need God's grace. We need God to train our eyes to him, to what is good and true and beautiful, and to love it. We need him to train our eyes that we would learn. So it's that shaping training. Learn to guard our gaze and focus it on the right things. So if your heart, my heart, is not captivated by, satisfied in Christ, then our empty, longing hearts will seek something to fill that void. So if our hearts are inclined away from God, our eyes are actually going to follow. They'll be very easily diverted and distracted. 
and we're going to be very vulnerable and susceptible to all kinds of false promises. So our eyes will be turned to all kinds of worthless things in search of, you know, just a little bit more life. They're going to be hungry eyes. Have you ever noticed that about yourself? Like, oh man, my eyes are kind of hungry. Anybody? Hungry for satisfaction. Have you ever done that, like, even with food in the kitchen? I've got like, I'm actually not really hungry, but I'm still on the, anybody? Yes? Had this experience? Okay. Um, So, hungry eyes looking for satisfaction. Something to consume to try to fill the emptiness of our heart and climb my heart to your testimonies, not to selfish gain. So we are in desperate need, but God is able. Yes! God is able to bend our hearts and turn our eyes to what is truly beautiful, truly satisfying, what truly matters. So we need to ask him and ask him and ask him, ask, seek, knock, day after day after day to train our hearts and our eyes. This isn't a once and done thing. This is over and over and over and over and over again. But we also need to do more than ask. Not less than ask, but more than ask. We also need to train our heart and eyes. So Psalm 119 says, train my eyes and heart. It's a prayer. Proverbs 4 says, hey, believer, train your heart and eyes. Okay? So look at Proverbs 4. It's an owning of our responsibility, knowing that growth and change and following Jesus just doesn't happen magically. Okay? So grace, listen to this. This is really important. Grace and effort are not opposed to one another. God's grace enables our efforts. Okay? This isn't doing stuff on our own steam. But like Philippians 2, work out your salvation because God's at work. (laughs) So if God's at work, you can work out. But work out! How about this one? This one's kind of mind-blowing. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. That seems kind of like an oxymoron, doesn't it? But God's at work, and so we can... God's in control, and we can be in control. (laughs) That's great. That's Bible logic. That's like deep wisdom Bible logic right there. So, grace and effort not opposed to one another. We can work out because God is at work. The fact that Jesus won the decisive battle doesn't mean we don't have to fight. It means we can fight. It means we're empowered to fight. It's kind of like David and Goliath. So the Israelites were scared to death. They couldn't handle Goliath. But David fought for them. And in the strength of his victory, they're all like, you know, and they ran and just wiped out the, the Philistines. So because Jesus won the decisive battle, we are now given the armor of God and strength by his grace to fight. So let's look at how we need to train our heart and our eyes. Proverbs 4. We'll start in verse 20 just so that you can see the, some repetition of the themes here. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear. That's our responsibility. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Use sticky notes if you need to. <laughs> Keep them within your heart. 
for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. So our hearts govern our lives. Everything flows from our hearts. So poison in the spring, poison in the stream, right? If there's poison in the spring, it flows down and poisons all the streams. So we are in serious need of guarding and keeping our hearts. This is sacred space, folks. It's a sanctuary. Your heart is a sanctuary. And we've got to guard it. So don't just let anything in there. Don't let poison and smut and bitterness and resentment and self-pity and envy and covetousness take residence in there and grow and fester or it's going to seep and leach and flow down into all sorts of other areas of your life. So think about it this way. Like if we don't keep our hearts, if we don't stay honest with ourselves, you know, in integrity, just honest about what's going on, honest with ourselves, honest with God, honest with others, we start doing this self-swindling thing, it's going to affect every other aspect of life. If you try to pull the wool over your own eyes in pursuit of, say, porn or sexual fantasy, you are, you're kind of dulling and searing your conscience. You're stiff-arming the Spirit's warnings and conviction, and you end up hardening your heart. But what happens is then you bring that harder heart to your tax preparation and your ethical, moral decisions at work. You, you see? So poison in the well, poison in the springs. Or poison in the spring, poison in the streams. Um, it also means you're going to bring a harder heart to the relationships in your life, in your marriage, with your kids, with your parents. But it works the other way around, which is wonderful. If your heart is soft and sensitive to the Spirit, quick to repent, keep, to, keep short accounts with God on the purity front, for instance, or whatever else, it will encourage the same everywhere else. So poison in the spring, poison in the stream. If your heart is proud, selfishly ambitious, self-pitying, it affects everything. So we've got to guard and train our hearts vigilantly, but also our eyes. Look at verse 25. Heart and eyes are present here. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet. Then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. So think about where you're headed and why you're headed there and how you're walking in order to get there and who your companions are and whether they're helping or hurting you. Ponder your path. Look where you're going. <laughs> like little kids, like, you know, I mean, we're kind of like little kids, just, you know, parents saying, look where you're going, <laughs> head up, you know, we need to do the same thing. Socrates famously said, right, the unexamined life is not worth living. Well, the unexamined life and heart is also dangerous. Ignorance is not bliss. So see no evil, hear no evil, is a dangerous way to live. You know, it, it makes you basically one who's wandering blindfolded through a minefield. So ponder the path of your feet. 
We've got to train our gaze, aim our eyes on the path, aiming our eyes at what's good and true and beautiful, running the race that's set before us with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Or think about Philippians 3.17. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So training your eyes can be fixing your eyes on Jesus and also looking to the example of others who are mature in the faith and you say, what does this look like? And you sit down with them for coffee and say, hey, how do I do this parenting thing? How do I do this marriage thing? And you keep your eyes on their example and learn to walk this path. So the eyes are the window to the heart. And like I mentioned, it works both ways. What we want, we will look for. What we behold, then, will fill and shape our loves. So we've got to guard our eyes and guard our hearts. We've got to train the gaze of our eyes and bend the inclination of our hearts. So heart is sanctuary. It's a temple. Only God is God. You shall have no other gods before me. Jesus is Lord. He should reign in our hearts, like it says in 1 Peter 3.15. In your heart, honor Christ as Lord. That's what we're asking for when we, when we pray, your kingdom come. We want your rule and reign. We want you to be king over our lives, which involves surrender, like Russell mentioned. We bow the knee to King Jesus. We're not God, he is. We're not the Lord, he is. So guarding our hearts and our eyes, order my loves, and battling for the same. Daily battle to aim and focus and discipline and teach both our heart and our eyes to habituate our love for God. So before we consider the final point, um, notice that these two texts side by side are giving us a both-and approach, a both-and path. Grace and effort. Dependence and discipline. Rest in Christ and run hard after Christ. Peace and warfare. So how does this work out? Well, it works out in a million ways. What does it sound like? I'll just give you a couple examples. You can tease out some more. Maybe with your community group or this afternoon just thinking about it. It sounds like this. Help me love your word. And I'm going to get in the word tomorrow morning. (laughs) Or right now. It sounds like, give me a heart for your church and for the people in my community group. And I'm going to go to church and community group even when I don't feel like it. And on and on. Okay? Lots and lots of examples of what that could look and sound like. But finally, last point, and actually most importantly, let's go ahead right now and fix our eyes and our hearts on God's heart and his eyes. Okay? God's heart and eyes. Who are we dealing with here? We wander from him because we think that our good is somewhere else. Right? Again, Russell shared thoughts along these lines. We didn't even coordinate. Um, but the Spirit of God did. 
So we think poor, false, harsh thoughts of God. We're blind to his glory. We're dull to his beauty. So we need to behold his glory and have our hearts just melt and be captivated by the superior beauty and worth and value and satisfaction that is found in him. So just a few glimpses. This is going to be kind of a string of texts. So listen, I hope that a string of texts doesn't mean you kind of like check out. These are like morsels of filet mignon right now, okay, of the glory of God. So just even maybe you need to pray, like, Lord, help me, help me taste and see that you are good. So who are we dealing with? His heart is huge, and it's warm, and it's loving, and it's compassionate, and it's merciful and gracious, and his heart is trained on mercy to us and blessing for wandering hearts like ours. So for instance, after God's people had acted like a whore, unfaithful to him, over and over again, all kinds of other lovers. What does God do? Hosea eleven seven. My people are bent on turning away from me. Then in verse 8, how can I give you up? Listen to the heart of God. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. That is the heart of God. Do you see how it is trained on us for mercy and compassion and love and grace to crazy, prone-to-wander people like us? Unfaithful bride that we are. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Micah 7. Here's another one. Who is a God like you, (laughs) pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever. Why? Because what he really loves is steadfast love. What he really, like the default setting where he really wants to be is steadfast love trained on us, not anger and wrath. That's where his heart is at. And so he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. There are so many of these. Lamentations 3, 31 to 33. For the Lord will not cast off forever. Though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart Does he have to discipline us? Yes. But his real heart is for steadfast love. That's his deepest heart. When he has to discipline, he will discipline. Tough love. But he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of man. He really wants to pour out steadfast love. Jeremiah 32. We're not going to read this whole thing, but look at the end of it. Verse 41. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Do you know he does that? He pours out his grace with all of his heart and his soul. That's his heart. 
totally trained on us. Jeremiah 31, 20. Do, do you think of God talking this way about us? Is Ephraim, so this is his people in the Old Testament. Again, this is his heart, same heart. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, he had to. He's speaking truth, calling out their sin. I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. <laughs> I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. That's the heart of God trained on us. His heart is also, his love is tough, yes. Hebrews 12. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Don't think it's because I hate you. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Second, his eyes. We've looked at his heart. Now let's look at what his eyes are trained on. Exodus 2.25, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. They were afflicted. They were suffering. God wasn't oblivious. He wasn't, you know, too, um, you know, don't you hate it when you can't think of a word, especially when you're preaching? Um, <laughs> occupied in some other part of the cosmos, you know, that he forgot about us? No, God saw their suffering and he knew. In fact, chapter 3, verse 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I've come down to deliver them. His eyes trained on his people for mercy and deliverance. Isaiah 66, 2, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The New Testament version of that same promise is he gives more grace. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. His eyes are trained on those who know how much they need him. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. But... This is a both and. We also need to guard our hearts, right? We've got to fight for a devoted, undivided heart. Where are God's eyes trained to strengthen and to bless? Not those who merely talk a good game, but whose heart is elsewhere. Look at 2 Corinthians 16, or I'm sorry, 2 Chronicles 16.9 um, as we close here. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless. It's actually the word shalom. Complete, whole, devoted, not double-minded or conflicted. Those folks whose heart is whole toward him. Like wholehearted. We really want him. So do you want his strong support? Then dependence and discipline. Our hearts are prone to wander, our attention so easily distracted. We need to desperately depend on God, and we need to diligently discipline ourselves. Amen? Amen. We're going to sing Come Thou Fount right now as a closing prayer, very fitting for these themes, and then we'll have a little time for a community discussion um, as we close.